So we've um, concluded the series that I was in uh, called What Christians Pursue uh, the last time, and um, I was thinking of where to go next, and it was on my heart to do a pursuit of wisdom. And I thought uh, we'd go through the whole book of Proverbs in doing that. And um, while, we were, while I was thinking about this, my brother Kevin came into my ear and whispered, maybe, maybe we should do something about um, God's pursuit of us. I said, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. It follows on from our pursuit of God. But uh, my heart was set on Proverbs and... Um, um, I'd sort of spoken to Chad about it, and I had prepared, and I had all my outlines ready and everything, and so I was going to do Proverbs. And then we went to India, and you'll see why I'm telling you the story, but <laughs> I'll get there. Um, we, we, we went to India, and um, I wanted to read while I was on holiday, just for my own soul, and just uh, I wanted God to minister to me through His Word, and uh, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, maybe Kevin was praying. <laughs> I, I found myself in Hosea. And um, I read through the book. Um, I read it once again. And um, I'm like, wow, this is, this, I need to understand this. Uh, you know, not everything was clear to me. And the only commentary that I had on me at the time on my phone was um, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on the book of Hosea. And as I started to read, uh, I was challenged to see the love of God. More importantly, how God pursues us as a people and how God pursued Israel as His chosen nation through the prophet Hosea. And so um, I, was, I wanted to share that because I think that um, it's, speaking about God's love is something that we all want to hear about. Um, speaking about God's love is a beautiful thing. We've sung about it all this morning. And I think it would be wonderful for us to spend time in Hosea around God's love. Now, a question that you may ask is, um, you know, how do we know that the book of Hosea is about God's love? You know, there's a lot of wrath and judgment in the book. Um, and if you're in your Bible and you wouldn't mind turning to chapter 3, verse 1, I think this is a key verse which tells us what the book is about and then the Lord said to me, which is Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, but yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the son of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now, I'm not sure about raisin cakes. We'll come to that when we come to chapter 3. But definitely, this is a book about God's pursuit of His chosen people. And definitely, uh, we want to be studying this. And so, I have a title, which is, Oh, love that will not let me go. It's from an old song. We hope to sing it at some point. But this is the love of God that will not let us go. It just will not let us go. And so I want us to understand what God's love is. Don Carson has written a short book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a difficult doctrine because... How our understanding of love is very different to God's understanding of love. We have uh, an emotional, a sentimental understanding of love, and that's fine. But when we project that onto God, we find it hard to understand His love because we see His love come to us uh, in terms of tough love, judgment and wrath. And so I thought it would be good for us to understand love not just from a, or not from a human standpoint, but from the standpoint of God. How does God see love? What is it? I mean, the Bible tells us God is love. And what is that love? How do we understand that love? How do we practice that love? How do we see that love shown to us? And then how do we respond according to that love? What does God expect us to do in response to that love? C.S. Lewis talks about the hound of heaven. And he said, God pursued him. And I want us to see that and, and just understand what does the pursuit of God's love look like for us? I want to say that it's a non-abandoning love. And we can get very um, sentimental about, you know, God doesn't leave us where we are and He, he doesn't leave us alone. And that's true and it's, it's right. But when, when we want to talk about God's non-abandoning love... 
we need to understand that He doesn't abandon us in our state of sin. He doesn't leave us as He finds us. In the same way that He didn't want Hosea to leave Gomer the way He found her. And that story, of course, is we don't know how that story ends in terms of Hosea and Gomer, but we know how God wants us to respond. And we've been singing about eternity and how we will praise Him for all eternity. And so we want to understand that God's non-abandoning love is a love that will not let us be the way we are. It wants to change us and transform us and make us more into the image of His Son. It's not just about leaving us in our sinful state. It wants to perfect us. And we sang about that as well. It's a perfecting love. So I want us to understand, what is that love? What is that love that will just not let us be? Will just not, it's not an indulgent love in that it doesn't let us be as we are, but it wants to conform us to Him. And so we, we want to understand that this is a challenging subject. I, I want us to understand and be clear that the love of God and God's pursuit of us is a challenging subject because it confronts us with who we are, who God is, and what the nature of love truly is. It brings us to the heart of the gospel because we see themes of love and judgment and hope and grace. And so it challenges us as to what the good news of Jesus Christ actually is when we see it in light of who we are and who God is. And as Chad keeps exhorting us that truth is, is reality as, as God sees it, how does God see love? How does God see us? What is His expectation of us? And we see all of this which is what I find the most interesting thing. We see all of this not set in the context of creator and creature, not set in the context of redeemer and redeemed, not set in the context of king and subject, but in the context of husband and wife. That just blows my mind that God just not just sees us as His creatures to worship Him. He sees us as a partner to be intimate with. That is really, really challenging to me. That a God who is so high above us would seek to be so intimate with us, much like a husband as with a wife. That just blows my mind. That God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, holy would want to be that intimate with us would want to know us that closely, would want us to know Him that closely. And so we have, have some key issues that we need to deal with when we come to Hosea. How do we understand this command to go and marry a prostitute? How do we understand that? I mean, how do we apply that to our lives today? What does it mean? What, is it, what does it have to say about marriage? God and Israel... Christ and His church, our own partners. How are we to understand the issue of love and marriage in the context of Hosea? And so we will be, we'll be looking into deeply the love of God. And, and, and as we go through the book, we need to understand a few tips that this is not about Hosea and Gomer. This is not about us sort of putting ourselves and reading ourselves. Hosea, look what a great guy am I, and you know, I'm just being beaten down by the world. This is a book about God, Yahweh, and Israel. This is a, about how God pursues His people, Israel, to perfect them, and one day we will see that He will make them into a people who love Him. But in the meanwhile, as we find ourselves in the 20th century looking back to a time which is thousands of, at least 3,000 years before us, how do we understand what Hosea was saying to the people of his time? How do we understand what the Holy Spirit is telling us today? And how do we see the future as it's going to unfold? What do we expect? 
So this is a book of a lot of issues. It's not just about love. It's, it's primarily about love, but it encapsulates a whole lot of other issues that we need to understand if we are to truly correctly understand this book, understand who God is, understand God's love, understand who we are, and understand how that all fits together in the grand scheme of things. How deep is God's love for me? I I, I saw a, a meme recently that Paul Washer says that apparently one of the most challenging things for an evangelical is to get their head around how deeply God loves them. How deep is God's love for us? We, we can sing, yes, he, he, he died, and can it be that I should gain an, an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, me to, him to death pursued. How does he pursue me? And I want us to to see our study in in Hosea as a study in intimacy. And as we do that, we will see who God is. We will see who we are. We will see the gospel unfold before us. So just a few basic tips before we head into the study. Hosea isn't the hero. Every story has a hero and an anti-hero and all of that. Hosea is not the hero. God is. So if, if we are tempted to, to read ourselves into, the, into Hosea, let's not do that. We're Gomer. Let's understand that. After that, this is, this is not an allegory. This is not a metaphor. This actually happened. This is reality. And we'll talk about that as we go through the first verse of, of this book. But, but a, a few other things. We need to understand Hosea in light of God's covenant. God is angry and upset because His covenant has been violated. God is not responding. He's not exaggerating. He's not being harsh when He calls Israel an adulteress or a harlot. He's he's reacting the way He is because His covenant has been violated. And as we go through the first chapter and we go through the book, we will see time and time and time again the covenant being referenced, being brought up again as a symbol not just of judgment but also of hope. And so we will see that the gospel message come through us very clearly. And I just want to read a few verses about the covenant from Deuteronomy 28. You don't have to turn there. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city and blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall your offspring be. The Lord will establish you. And all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord, then curses will follow. And all these curses, cursed will you be in the city, and cursed shall you be a basket and kneading bowl. And the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old, nor nor show favor to the young. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down. And we see what God revealed to Moses in terms of a covenant is now being referenced again and brought up that, the God, that God is, is angry with Israel because she has not kept her part of this covenant. And God is really enforcing the terms of His covenant by saying, look, if you disobey, then this is what's going to happen to you and that's what Hosea says. And so we need to understand uh, Hosea in the context of God's covenant. And so the husband-wife metaphor is not arbitrary, it's not sentimental, it's not romantic, it is based in covenant promise. And lastly, we need to understand about Israel and how do we understand Israel then and now and in the future? And, And back then Israel were the people of God. And in the future they will be the people of God, but now they're not. Now they're not. Now they're just like any pagan nation. 
And so I'm not saying that to, to make us stop supporting friends of Israel. Or I'm not saying that, that we should stop praying for Israel or, 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 or not consider them highly esteemed by God. But I'm just saying they are not God's people right now. And it, it, it may be hard to understand and, and comprehend, but I hope that as we go through the book, um, we will see how this all plays out. So we're going to look at um, 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 the, the, our passage, chapter 1 and verse Two, chapter 2, verse 1, in, in four parts. And the first part that we were going to look at is just verse 1. And we want to see a picture of the world. We want to see a picture of the prophet in his world at his time. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Now that, that seems to be like the title of the book. That's not, that's not just an introduction this is the word. The whole book is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Hosea means salvation. We see variants of his name in, in uh, Joshua, in Jesus, or Yeshua. So it talks about salvation. And it, the, the word of the Lord came to Hosea during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, on the face of it, there's not a lot that this verse is saying. It's just talking about certain kings. But if we look at uh, the history of, of Israel, um, there's a lot being said here. There's a lot being said. And maybe just have a look at, I don't know if you can see it from that far, but you've got Israel in green and Judah uh, in orange. Israel on the top, Judah at the bottom. And above Israel, uh, just up there, is the Assyrian Empire. And they were causing a lot of trouble. And they also have trouble with the Aram Damascus kingdom who are coming in and plundering them and having a, a few escapades and causing them a lot of grief. But um, the, what I want to say is this is rooted in history. And that's what I want to talk about. The message of Hosea is not just a parable. It is not metaphor. It is not allegory. It is true. It is real. The kings who are... The, the, the verses that talk the verse that talks about these kings it gives us a historic picture it gives us a military picture it gives us a political picture it gives us an economic picture and it gives us a spiritual picture there's a lot that's coming through in these verses and i just want to unpack it a bit jeroboam is the last of israel's kings or the um, or the most significant of israel's kings there's a few that come after him and we want to just see um, I don't know if you can see it there, but in the middle are the kings of Israel, and the gap is because they go into captivity. Judah still stays on the right, then there's, few, there's still a few kings. Below, you can't see Jeroboam. I didn't have a, a proper diagram, but basically Jeroboam, whose, whose reign lasts for about 41 years, he's the longest-serving king for Israel, and he brings a lot of peace. He does a lot of secular good to the country. He brings economic prosperity. He starts defeating Damascus. He expands the, the borders of Israel. The population of Israel grows. And so Jeroboam's doing a lot of good stuff. But Amos tells us that Jeroboam is overconfident. And so we, when we, we see a, a, a political picture, we see an economic picture of great prosperity, but the spiritual picture is one of overconfidence and pride and idolatry. After, after Jeroboam, uh, we have six kings who come in very quick succession, just 30 years between them. And then Israel goes into captivity. I also want to bring your attention to a guy called Tiglath Pileser, and he's the king of Assyria. He's the bad guy. And he's, he's, he takes um, Israel into captivity, into Assyria. And the reason why I want to mention it I don't know if you can see that, but that's, that just says it's a relief slab. When we went to Turkey in, in, in the museum, I saw this slab. And I got really excited because it said, from the palace of Tiglath Pileser III, 744 to 727 BC, that's exactly the time that Hosea was around. And I'm not, not saying this to say that I saw something from Hosea's time, which is true, but this is true. This text is true. It is supported by even secular archaeology, not that we place our faith in archaeology, but this is, this is true. This happened. Tiglath Pileser III came in, took, Assyria, uh, took Israel into captivity, into Assyria. And so that's the, the little 
uh, slab that is from his, uh, from his palace. And so basically, that's, that's Hosea's tenure of ministry, about 40 years, from 755 to 715, give, a few, uh, give or take a few. And so he's saying that he's been in, he's been in ministry uh, to all these kings, and there's, no, there's not been any other prophet that has spoken to so many kings. So Hosea's influence really is quite long-standing, even though the book is, and he's a minor prophet. But his uh, significance is, is, is by no means minor. And so he's, he's, his, his main uh, ministry is to Israel, and he's talking to Israel, and um, he, he can see the decline. The prosperity uh, and, and military prowess that Jeroboam has brought in has led to an overconfidence that has now extended itself to the people of Israel. And so they would call themselves the people of God, but just by name. They are not the people of God indeed. They are pretending to be the people of God. And I think that's where we need to ask ourselves as well, you know, we are, we, in this church we would, we would profess to be the people of God. Are we pretending? Or are we truly the people of God? What does it mean to be the people of God? And we'll see how that comes through in this book. So really, this is, this is a real and historic event. This is, this is God's sovereignty acting in history. I want, us to, I, I want us to understand this, that what God is doing is real and it has happened and He is not just making empty threats to Israel, but Israel did go into captivity. And in and through this judgment of God on Israel, we see His love come shining through. We see the hope that He promises through Hosea. I also want us to see how this applies to us. In that God expects His people to be faithful to Him. In times of prosperity, in times of peril, the circumstance does not matter what matters is that our hearts are fully, completely, exclusively loyal to Him. That was the problem with Israel. And so that's, we see that as uh, the picture of the world in Hosea's time. Moving on to the second part, which is the pain of infidelity and the plan of action as we see in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Very strong language. Very strong language. Three times. Harlotry, harlotry, harlotry. But before we understand harlotry, I want to point out that it's the land that commits the flagrant harlotry. The land is a key part of God's covenant with Israel. The promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham and reconfirmed to Isaac and reconfirmed to Jacob, and then they go into Israel, but God says, I will bring you out to the promised land, a land of milk and honey. The land is massive in the heritage of Israel. The land was meant to be a place where God's people would come and worship Him and be His people in the way that He meant for them to be and be a light to the nations. That was the plan. God makes His covenant that I will give you this land and He did. Defeated nations before them. He established them in the land. But what does the land do? It commits flagrant harlotry. Great whoredom is what the King James says. So how do we understand this harlotry? Well, it's not so much a profession or a career, but a character trait. It means fornication. Literally, the word means fornication or a sexually promiscuous behavior. In a spiritual sense, it means selling out. No longer loyal to. And it's not, just, it's not just harlotry, but flagrant, wanton, 
extreme and excessive. It's, it's massive. It's massive in terms of its height and weight and depth and magnitude. It's huge. I want you to understand that Israel doesn't see itself like this. Israel thinks it's fine. Israel's going to the temple. Israel's doing all the sacrifices. Israel's keeping up the appearances. But God is saying, hang on, there is flagrant harlotry in the land. And this is what I mean that we need to be seeing through God's eyes. How does God view us? How is God viewing our worship? We think we could be fine. We think we could be living fine. We think God, it's all hunky-dory. But what's God saying? How have they committed flagrant harlotry? Well, the next word says, by forsaking the Lord. How have they forsaken Him? They have forgotten His covenant. They have forgotten to practice His covenant. They have forgotten what it means to be the people of God according to what was revealed to Moses on the mountain. They have gone astray in their hearts. They keep up appearances on the outside, but inside, they think it's okay to worship Baal as well. They think it's okay to, to mix up um, religions. They think it's okay to, to worship another god along with Yahweh. Why? I don't know. Maybe times of prosperity have got, made them lax. Maybe times of peril and, 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 and military turmoil make them want to look at Assyria and Egypt and other countries for help. And God says, I am your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Look to me. Don't look at other kings. Don't put your trust in princes and horses and all of these things. But no. And we can understand that because sometimes we find ourselves in times of great trouble where it's hard to trust the Lord. It's hard to be His people. And yet we must. Is God being harsh by calling Israel a harlot? Well, let me ask you another question. Is God being harsh by looking at Israel as his wife? The, 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 the imagery and symbolism of harlotry is because there's intimacy and there's been betrayal. The fact that God says that you are an adulteress is because God sees himself in covenant relationship with Israel. And Israel has betrayed him and therefore he's, he calls her what he does. And so this, this harlotry is, is even literal. Because in, in, in the worship of, of Baal, who was the fertility god, sometimes you would have these orgies in order to just you know, bring rain or bring fertility to the land or something, and they would indulge in actual prostitution. And so there's a, there's a, there's a physical aspect to it, and there's a, there's a spiritual aspect to it, an internal aspect where Israel is no longer passionate about her god. God is not doing it for Israel anymore. God is not inciting Israel's passion anymore. The, the needs of Israel perhaps are too big and great and, and maybe God is not sufficient for these needs. So I've got to look somewhere else. And isn't that what happens in a marriage? And we can understand this because, you know, sometimes we, we feel our, our spouse is not doing it for us anymore. Yeah, we, we, we love them, but you know, it's, uh, the spark's not there. And God is, is presenting His case to us in such intimate terms, not through exaggeration, because that's how He sees the relationship with us. And there's no excuse for the spark not being there, because God is there. He is faithful. He is sufficient. He is enough. We've gone through a whole series in Colossians where we've talked about the sufficiency of Christ for us. We say, the Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not? Why do we want? Because we're discontent. And, and I want to say that the heart of this idolatry is a discontentment with God. He's, he's my God, but you know, he, he, he doesn't do this for me. 
Or he's my God, but he's, he, I, I, I'm not getting this from him. And so the pain of infidelity is, is shown in Israel's guilt of covenant disloyalty and their discontentment. So what's the plan of action? Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry because the land commits flagrant harlotry. Could God say that? Could God actually tell Hosea to do this? And I want to read a, a, a quote from James Montgomery Boyce's um, his, um, um, commentary, which says, If Hosea's story cannot be real, because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real. Because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. And he has done this even though he knew in advance that we would often prove faithless. And so we see in the story of Hosea mirrored our own situation. We understand our own situation in Hosea because what Hosea does for Israel, Christ does for us. Okay, it's real. So how do we understand it? And there's, there's a few, issue, uh, there's a few uh, thoughts around this. Maybe she was, uh, she was faithful before and then she became, you know, an adulteress or she was uh, an adulteress to begin with. Regardless, I mean, however way you look at it, and I tend to believe that she was faithful to begin with because that is how we are. But the point is, Hosea, take for yourself a wife who is going to break your heart. And that is what Christ does for us. So here's the plan. Take upon yourself the same pain that Israel has afflicted on me. And let your marriage be a picture of what Israel has done to me and let your kids be a picture of what I will do to Israel. Hosea is not the hero, so I'm not going to talk about you know, the pain that he went through and what was in his mind. That's besides the point. The point is that there is sin and there will be judgment. Now we can understand all about the plan from a future perspective and I'll talk about it in a second. But our third part now moves to the prophecy of judgment. We've seen the picture of the prophet in his world. We've seen the pain that, I, that, that Israel's infidelity caused and the, and the plan that, that God reveals. And now come the prophecies. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And I'm not going to go into meanings of Gomer and Diblaim. There's not much out there. We don't want to speculate, so let's move on. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. Now there's meaning in this name. Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Israel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So obviously, each of the children is meant to convey a specific judgment through their name. And it's a reminder that judgment is coming. It's imminent. Now, there's again speculation. Uh, the, 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 the text tells us that she bore him a son. And so maybe people think that, you know, maybe this was the only son that was actually um, Hosea's. We don't know. That's all speculation. But um, Jezreel, it can either mean to sow or it can mean to scatter. And we see that in this context of judgment, it's talking about scattering. Because the word Jezreel, it was, it was a town, it was a place associated with a great bloodbath. And that is where Jehu murdered the sons of Ahab, about 70 of them, and then there were some relatives of Azariah, Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, 42 of them. And he, he, he just slaughtered them. 
Now, he thought he was doing the work of God, and God says, uh, you have done what, you have fulfilled the prophecy really of, of Elijah, that you will put an end to the dynasty of Omri. But God uses Sennacherib. God uses Nebuchadnezzar to do his will as well. And he punishes them for it. And here we see God promises to end Jehu's dynasty because he was motivated by bloodlust and just self-interest. And so I want us to feel the weight of this name. Imagine if you were to name your son Pearl Harbor or Auschwitz or Hiroshima. Why did you name your kid like that? Because God is going to put the same violence on Israel that we saw in Jehu's case. This great, it's, it's, I don't think we can fully feel the weight of, of judgment in this name. And we see that God fulfills. And, and, and I think Hosea would have been around to see this because Israel is deported. The bow of Jezreel is broken. Strength has been decimated. Israel is no more. God's word is true. And so it's the, a name that portends utter decimation of Israel. And so Jezreel, judgment is coming. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Wow. Imagine naming your daughter No Mercy. We've been singing about mercy, mercy, mercy all, all morning. But God says, name your daughter Lo Ruhamah because I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow and sword and and horses or horsemen. And we see this come true. Because Judah, when, when, is, when, it is being, uh, when Sennacherib is knocking at the gate during the time of Hezekiah, Hezekiah goes to Isaiah and Isaiah says, no, no, you're not going to, you're not going to perish. 180,000 troops are killed. Sennacherib goes back and he's killed in Assyria. The Lord keeps his word to Judah. But Israel is taken away. And then when she had low Ruhama, so that's about two, three years, maybe. So again, we don't know how much time has gone between the birth of each child, but this gives us some clue that maybe two, three years has passed since um, Lo Ruhama was, was born. And now we have another boy. And the Lord said, name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. It's pretty desperate. Not my people. Hosea is talking about his son and he's saying, it's kind of like, you're not my son. And yet, there's, the, he, he's a father to him. But I want us to also remember that there's another name over here that has been reversed. And if you see, for you are not my people, and I am. Where have we heard that name before? God, who, who, who are you in, in, this, in this burning bush? Who shall I send? Who shall I say that has sent me? Say, I am has sent me. But I am not your God. The covenant name of God has been withdrawn from Israel. It's kind of like saying Ichabod, the glory has departed. And so the God who reveals himself as I am to Moses is the God who withdraws himself through Hosea saying, I am not your God. And so again, the covenant aspect is brought into sharp focus again. 
that the covenant has been betrayed and now God is making Israel face the consequences that he said would be faced when he gave the covenant. And so we see um, just in, in, in the progression of these names in the lives of these children, God's gradual abandonment of his people. The end is coming. No mercy. Not my people. Not your God. It gives us a glimpse as to what God's judgment looks like. God's judgment looks like abandonment to sin. He leaves us in our sin. It's Romans 1 all over again. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. This is what you want? Fine. God's judgment is not something we want. God's abandonment is... We, even today, the secular person, feel something of the presence of God in terms of His providence through natural resources and causes to them. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But a time will come when God will abandon us to our sin. Sin's consequences must be faced. But there is hope. That's what is amazing. From verse 9 to verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Where have we heard that before? Abraham. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And your progeny will be like the sands of the sea and like the stars in the sky which cannot be numbered. And we see that God is once again faithful to His covenant. We, we, there is hope because God is faithful. Israel is not faithful. Gomer is not faithful. We are not faithful, but God is. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sister, Ruhamah. The names have been reversed. What a great reversal, not because of what Israel does, but because of the grace of God. We see there is hope because of God's covenant faithfulness. And we see new names are given and the identity is reversed. From, from going to low Ruhama, you go to Ruhama. From going to low Ami, you go to Ami. It's, it's just an opposite. And Paul refers to this in Romans 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so, why? To make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only. And so now here we see a picture that... that Israel, from, from Hosea's perspective, not my people, no compassion was for Israel. But Paul is saying, no, no, that's for us, the church, all Gentiles, not from among Jews only, but also from the, among the Gentiles, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, uh, beloved, and it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of God. And so if we want to understand this in our context, we now see how God has made a way to encompass the nations as He promised again in His covenant to Abraham that He will bring them in. 
First Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Get this, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How amazing that the words of Hosea, spoken more than 3,000, around 3,000 years ago, had relevance to Israel back then and have relevance to us today and will have relevance in the future. It's amazing the promise of restitution. We see that there is hope because of God's covenant faithfulness. We see there's hope because identities have been reversed. We see there's hope because of the future. And hopefully as we, as we move on in this series, we will see the hope for Israel. We will see the hope for the church and we will see the hope that is coming when that great reunification will happen. Now there was some reunification, some glimmer of hope when Israel was taken away into captivity and Ephraim and Manasseh came and joined Judah. We see that when they joined Hezekiah and a great Passover. We see that Ephraim and, and Manasseh and Judah after the exile come together and live in Jerusalem. But that is just a partial glimpse of that glorious time when there will be a great revival of Jezreel. And so now we see the, the name of Jezreel no longer be scattering but sowing. God is sowing hope. And the northern and the southern now will come together as one, one body. And so I want us to understand the fulfillment of, of Hosea from, from his standpoint. In, in, in his day, he was looking at the flagrant harlotry. In the immediate or in the near future, he was looking at the decimation of Israel and captivity into Syria. And then in the distant future, he was looking at that great revival and so we see that aspect of now but not yet. And so hopefully that will help us to understand how we see Israel and how we understand the church because in, in that great and distant future, we have the return from exile, which was true, but we also have the church come in because that's what Paul and Peter said, now we are all part. And then there will be that day when Christ returns and all Israel will look upon whom they have scarred and they will mourn as for an only son. And in that day will be opened a great fountain for the house of David, which shall cleanse from sin and impurity. That day has not come, but we wait for that day. So what do we make of all of this and how do we, how do we summarize God's pursuit of us. I want to say that God's relationship with us is far more deeper and far more intimate than we know or can imagine. And I want us in the week ahead to really explore that intimacy of this relationship that, that He wants with us. When we worship when we come to Him, praising Him and adoring Him and glorifying Him, we explore some of that intimacy. But we need to grow in it. I want to say that Christ is not just our King and our Savior and our Redeemer. He is also our husband. We know that. Because we are the church and He is the groom and we await His return. When we, when we sing, when we read the word, are we, are, we, are we seeing Christ as our husband? Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. What a great responsibility that is 
and as Christ is our husband, anything that takes his place in our lives is tantamount to infidelity. We're having an affair. We must repent. He knew he, we would be unfaithful and yet he died for us. We read that in our responsive reading. We love him because he first loved us. And let us understand that this love is intimate, not in a sense of romanticism or sentimentality, but holiness. His love is a holy love. It will not let us rest in sin till we are completely made into his likeness. And that's, that's where it hurts. That's where we do feel the judgment of God upon us because our sin causes consequences that cause pain. We talk about it being refined and we are in the fire and we are like gold and being refined and we like the idea of gold and silver but you know there's fire. It's painful. It hurts. But that is the extent of His love because we can see through the pain, through the hurt, we can look forward to that great and wonderful hope that one day He is going to return for us to be with Him. And we will forever enjoy that relationship of intimacy that He always wanted for us. It's a purposeful love. It's a love that will not let us go. So let us continue to live in submission to Him in that love. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we just are blown away by the amazing love that you showed us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Father God, we just pray that as we ponder, meditate upon your word in the week ahead, Lord, that we would be gripped not just by the reality of your love, not just by the intensity of your love, Lord, but by the intimacy of your love. Father God, we just pray that that would motivate us to live in holiness out of gratitude for you because sin drives us away from you. Sin puts a wedge in the intimacy that you desire with us. And so, Lord, wanting, to, wanting deeper intimacy, wanting deeper relationship, Lord, we just pray that we would seek to live holy lives that bring you glory, that bring us closer to you, and help us to enjoy that wonderful relationship that you want with us. Help us to look for that day and pray for that day when Christ, our groom, will return to be with us and take us to be with him, where, we'll, where we will be forevermore, praising him honoring Him. But till that time, Lord, we just pray that You would find us faithful, living for You, loving You. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.